it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Welcome and a happy new year. Uh, Today is the first Sunday of Advent, so the first Sunday of the Christian calendar, and I want to welcome you all uh, to the beginning uh, as we continue uh, through the narrative lectionary. Please pray with me now. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made, and we ask now in the hearing of your word, uh, you would reveal yourself. We call upon you, make known to us things that have been kept secret from before the world was created. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We begin this Advent season this year with a reading from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not only a PK, a priest's kid, But he grew up in the city or the village of Anathoth, one of the ancient cities dedicated for priests' families. And uh, so you can imagine he grew up surrounded uh, by priests. And so it's not surprising that he was called to the prophetic ministry uh, when he was just a member of the youth group. As our reading opens at this point in his life, he has already been preaching for decades. He has repeatedly castigated the nation for their egregious acts of social injustice and their abandonment of the worship of the one true God of Israel. And for those efforts, he's been already humiliated in court. He's had his prophetic writings burned. He's been tossed in a muddy pit to die. He's been put in stocks for public ridicule. And he's been the target of an assassination attempt by the people of his own village. And now he is languishing in prison for a second time for having preached yet another unpopular sermon of doom and gloom, of impending destruction as the armies of the Babylonians are at the gates of Jerusalem and the city is about to fall. It is not a message that he takes delight in delivering. In fact, he actually is weeping for the suffering that he knows will come as the city and the people face annihilation. And so he laments to God. He complains to God that God is not doing anything to help out in this time of chaos and terror. And so God then responds to him in the reading you just heard by making this promise of healing and of restoration, beginning with this word, behold. Behold, God says, the days are coming. Barbara Brown Taylor is a best-selling author and is widely considered one of the most effective preachers in the English language. She served for 15 years as a priest of a small Episcopalian church in northern Georgia, uh, after which she decided to leave the pastorate, and she wrote a little memoir called Leaving Church to explain why she decided to leave the church. And she writes this, I realized 
just how little interest I had in defending Christian beliefs. The parts of the Christian story that had drawn me into the church were not the believing parts, but the beholding parts. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. She says she wanted out of the belief business and got back into the beholding business. She says, I wanted to recover the kind of faith that has nothing to do with being sure what I believe and everything to do with trusting God to catch me, though I am not sure of anything. As I've gotten older, I can definitely relate to these words. Not the leaving church part, but about wanting to behold more, to more fully embrace the mystery of God's presence. While logical arguments for the reality of God are important, while the defense of sound doctrine can be satisfying, I find that I want more to behold the beauty of the Lord, to behold the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. That beholding is far more compelling and comforting. In Jeremiah's day, it was hard to believe. It was impossible, perhaps, that God or anyone could keep these covenantal promises that God had made earlier, these promises of restoration and of healing. The entire city is about to be wiped out. And yet God says, behold, behold, the days are coming. The people, and we can rightly ask, how can a righteous branch spring up from David when they will not have a nation, let alone a king? How can Judah be saved and Jerusalem dwell securely when its walls are about to be breached, when the dead will litter the streets and those survivors will be taken away into captivity for the next seven decades? How can worship be restored when the temple is about to be raised and lay in ruins for decades to come? How? I remember when I was in college, in the 1980s, I had a friend who was testing a new technology. He was using this new trendy device called a personal computer. And he would write some sort of like computer command and then he would write a personal text and he would hit a button and it would send this message all the way across to another state, to another friend of his, uh, and he would wait for several minutes, and magically, as we watched that cursor just blinking, magically this message in this glorious green dot matrix font would appear from hundreds of miles away. And um, I remember watching this and thinking, what I should have said was, wow, this is awesome. This is the future. I, I should totally invest and go all in on this new technology. But instead, I said to him, this is so stupid. Why would anyone 
do this? This is so, so, so slow. Why would anyone type something, a message to a friend, when you can just use a telephone? You can just call them and talk instantaneously. Why wait these minutes to get a small text reply? I could not fathom at that time why anyone would want to communicate in this manner. My, my technologically limited mind could not grasp a future in which communication would be so fundamentally changed. Jeremiah's contemporaries probably also could not conceive of a future salvation in any other form than what they were used to. All they could picture was another king modeled after King David, leading armies to glorious military victories and then establishing some sort of security within their borders. That's all they could imagine. That's all they had known. They could not imagine a king without an army who would usher in the kingdom of God so that not only Judah and Jerusalem, but all peoples, and in fact all of creation, might dwell securely. Now, I know there are those who continue to read God's promises here in Jeremiah 33, literally, and are still waiting for that kind of restoration, for a descendant of King David to rise and to reestablish the Davidic kingdom, and for the temple itself to be restored and the sacrificial system reinstated. But as Christians, we have come to believe that God's promises have been fulfilled once and for all through the unexpected son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ. God's promise that King David will never lack a man to sit on his throne will not be fulfilled because he will continue to have descendants, but because the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, will be king now and forever. God's promise that the Levitical priests will never lack a man in making offerings will not be fulfilled because the temple system will be restored, but because, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus Christ is the forever priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he himself has made the one sacrifice for our sins once and for all, and no other sacrifices will be necessary. You see, the people in Jeremiah, they wanted to go back to what they remembered as the glorious days of King David and King Solomon when the nation seemed to have been unified and with political strength. But God had a much, much, much better plan in store for them. A better future, not only for them, but for the whole world. God's promise, God's promise and its unexpected fulfillment in Jesus Christ teach us that we need not we should not, we cannot go back to some real or imagined glorious past. God is inviting us to, to expand our imaginations to a future beyond anything that we have known previously. Over the, uh, the last year or so, I have probably said the word pre-COVID too much. Just last Sunday, I remarked to someone while we were having uh, lunch together in the fellowship hall, and by the way, uh, just a shout out to our fellowship team for that wonderful, wonderful, fantastic lunch we had last week. Um, you know, and I, and I said to someone, hey, you know, this feels 
like a pre-COVID fellowship lunch, right? Like, like the lunches that we used to have all the time before this uh, pandemic over the last several years. Um, and I meant that it, it kind of almost felt like the way it was before. But of course it wasn't. It wasn't quite the same. Because the truth is that we have all been changed. We've all been scarred individually and collectively over this experience of these last three years. And we cannot return to some pristine pre-COVID world which, you know, actually never really existed. But when life is difficult, when life is unsatisfying or particularly hard, I know that we often, we have this kind of longing for a past that we imagined was better. And I think for myself, I have to be careful when I, when I use this sort of language of, of pre-COVID that I'm not twisting, that I'm not telling a false narrative built on selective memories, which is precisely what the people of Jeremiah were doing as they remembered fondly the glorious days of King David and King Solomon. Now, to be clear, to be clear, there were things that were better before. Uh, this past week, uh, I got to play some ping pong uh, for the first time in a really, really long time. And I played very, very badly. And I woke up the next day like sore. <laughs> and yes, it's a very high energy sport, as you know. And I thought about how when I was younger, like when I was in high school, how I could play all day, play well, and not feel sore at all the next day, right? Now, I know it's hard to believe, but there was a time when I was a pretty decent athlete in high school, or as decent as a five foot seven, 125 pound man can be. Physically, I was in better health, but that that's just one piece of my life. If I could actually remember everything that was going on in my life when I was in high school, I mean everything, it's very doubtful that I would say that my life was better then. I think as a nation, as a group of people, we might remember a time when we thought this country or this world was in a better spot. And no question, there were parts of it that may have been better. I think that's the brilliance of Trump's slogan, right? Make America great again. It's this longing for a time when, yes, there were parts that were better. For many American Christians, it's this longing for a time when America did have greater international influence. And for American Christians, there was a time when Christians had a significantly greater cultural dominance and influence. No question. And admittedly, for a variety of reasons, for a number of people, there was a time in the past when things were better. But the problem is that what happens and what has happened in the past in all of history is that when one group of people are doing well, it's at the suffering of another group. 
In Jeremiah's day, those who were ruling and wishing they had the kind of power that King David and King Jeremiah, uh, Solomon had, they forgot that it was also a time when their sins, the sins of David and Solomon, led to great suffering for the people and death, that it laid the seeds of rebellion and civil war that were to follow. I know that when we were in grade school, we were taught about the heroic exploration, the age of exploration. But now we also have to acknowledge, yes, it was a heroic kind of age of exploration, but it was also a time, an age of exploitive colonization and slavery. The 1950s might have been a great time for the white Americans of the greatest generation, but it was not such a great time for their fellow black Americans with Jim Crow laws and segregation. Politics aside, if possible, as citizens, our aspirations for this country ought to be not a return to some fictional glorious past for some, but for a future where everyone dwells in prosperity and security. This is the vision and the promise of God's shalom. Not just the well-being of a few at the expense of the many, but the peace and the security of all of God's people, for all of God's creation. Not just so that the lions can rest in peace, but so that the lions and the lambs can lie together and dwell in safety. That is a promise that is given to us. Given what's going on in the world today, I know it's far easier to imagine a more dystopian future. But God tells us, behold, the days are coming. Even though things look really, really bad right now, the days are coming when I will fulfill my promises in spite of all the rubble and destruction that you are seeing and are about to see, there will be a time, the days are coming, when justice and righteousness will take root in the land once more. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a documentary uh, titled Fire of Love. Fire of Love. It's about this uh, couple, Katya and Maurice Kraft. And uh, the crafts spent their entire lives in the singular obsessive study of volcanoes. And they capture some of the most stunning pictures and, and videos of volcanic eruptions the world has ever seen. It was their opinion that every volcano is unique with a, uh, its particular personality and that they cannot be uh, grouped or categorized or, um, uh, or anything like that. And yet, uh, they eventually decided that volcanoes could be divided into two broad categories. Red volcanoes and gray volcanoes. Now, the red volcanoes, they said, are the pretty volcanoes. They're beautiful to look at. They're very predictable. And they flow to the sea like a river. In fact, Maurice wanted to take a boat down one of these lava flows into the sea. Uh, but his wife, of course, said no. Um, 
right? So these are the ones that they, they look lovely and they're very predictable. You can stand, you know, like you'd stand on a, on a river's edge and, and watch the flow. Gray volcanoes, on the other hand, they said, are unpredictable, totally destructive, and often prove deadly to everything uh, in its vicinity. And they spent the last uh, years of their lives uh, studying and focusing on these gray volcanoes. Now, what I found really uh, noteworthy is that the suffocating ashfall from these gray volcanic eruptions, which initially overwhelms and destroys all life, when it settles, becomes the very best possible soil. It's like the most fertile soil that you, can, that you can use to grow crops. As deadly as that, that gray ashfall is, it becomes the cradle upon which new life can once more grow. We cannot go back to the pre-volcanic pre forests before the eruptions, but we can find new and even more abundant life afterwards. That's the promise. That's what it is to, to behold, to see in the ashes of our sorrow the seeds of rebirth and a future joy. Behold. Let me close with this. Martin Luther King Jr. gave what I think is one of the, the greatest speeches ever made on April 3rd, 1968, just one day before he was assassinated uh, in Memphis. And he began his speech by asking himself this question, if God were to ask me, you can live in any period in history, where, when would you live? And he considered these several different points in history. And then he said that he would tell God that if he could choose to live in any era in history, he would choose to live in his present age, right when he was living. He acknowledged that this might not seem like a logical or a good choice, given all the incredible hardships he and the country were experiencing at that time. But he goes on to explain why, and then he concludes with these unforgettable words. And obviously, I'm not going to be able to do justice to his oratory power, but let me read you what he said. He said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. And I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And then he walked off the stage. He beheld the days of the coming of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. That's why he's not worried. That's why not, he's not fearful. That's why he's happy. He has seen the glory of the coming 
of the Lord. That's the same hope that Jeremiah is given. That's the same hope that you and I have. Behold, the days are coming. You know, as far as we know, Jeremiah dies in exile in Egypt. He never saw even the beginnings of the fulfillment of the promises that he gave to the people. But he knew, but he knew that the days were coming. He trusted that God would keep his promises and that we today would need to remember and to be reminded that God had been always creating a future even when things seemed most bleak. We cannot go back to the innocence of the Garden of Eden or to the days of pre-COVID or pre-cancer, or pre-divorce, or pre-job loss, or pre-whatever bad thing that has happened in your life. But we can behold and believe that we are beloved and that we belong. We can behold. Behold the days are coming when the angel will say, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you, this day in the city of David, a Savior has been born. Tis Christ the King. Pray with me. Lord, help us. Help us to remember whatever difficulties we are going through, and certainly none of us, I don't think, have experienced the terror of war at our doorsteps. But we have all experienced suffering and anxiety and fear and loss. So God, help us to remember to behold that the days are coming when your kingdom will come fully and we all together shall dwell in security. Amen.